The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we are three months after today, three months or five chapters into our series on the book of Acts called Jesus Continue. And one of the big themes that Maybe the biggest thing that we've seen so far in the book of Acts. In fact, you can't, if you've ever read the book of Acts before, if you've been studying with us, there's one theme that can't help but stand out. And it's really uh, set out by Jesus in chapter 1 and verse 8. And when he's appearing before his disciples, right before he's going to ascend into heaven, and he tells them, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. What he's promising to the disciples is that I'm going to give you a power that you do not have. I'm going to make you into something that you currently are not. Because his disciples that he left. uh, Let's. They weren't the tree of the crop. He left maybe a total of about 500 followers, Jesus did. And many of them were actually in the region of Galilee, which was not exactly a a region of Israel that was known for like movers and shakers and power brokers and a place of great culture and great intelligence. It was kind of a, it was a very, uh, it was full of peasants. It was kind of a poor area. Uh, If you came from Galilee, it wasn't a very impressive place to say that you came from. Nobody thought much of you because you said you came from Galilee. And so most of the people that he left were in Galilee and they were uneducated peasants, most of them, and his disciples, his closest, his apostles, his closest people to him were not the cream of the crop. There are people who, when the chips are down, when Jesus was going before his trial, they were nowhere to be seen. They were dispersed. They were scattered. They were hiding. His closest people to him, Peter, who is his, like, like, his go-getter guy, he denies him three times when the chips are down. Yet after Jesus' death and his burial and then his resurrection, uh, so after his death, the people who are outside the faith, they just believe that he's died. They don't know or don't believe anything about his resurrection. Yet after that, he dies. He's a, he's a great leader. You would expect this, this small, uneducated, uh, unimpressive group of followers to kind of dwindle or disperse or kind of fall away. He was a great leader. Uh, he gathered some people around him. But whenever he's gone, like, you would expect them to kind of just kind of disappear, disperse, dwindle. But something happens about a month, month and a half after Jesus' death. Not only does this group of people not disperse and dwindle, they actually explode with supercharged power in a way that the world had never seen before this. In fact, they they don't just disperse. They spread in Jerusalem like wildfire. And it ends up going to spread to the end of the known earth before even generation is going to pass away. It's an incredible story. 
Uh, later in Acts, so just to cheat ahead a little bit, Paul uh, is going to stand before King Agrippa. And as he stands before King Agrippa, he, he says something that's interesting to him. He says, King Agrippa, I'm not telling anything, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know. He's talking to him about Jesus and about how the gospel had spread. I'm not telling you about anything that you don't already know because these things were not done in a corner. They weren't hidden in a corner. It was the way the church explodes in Acts in such a way that it can't be ignored. It can't be ignored in Jerusalem and as it spreads throughout Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said in chapter 1, every place it goes, it goes with power and authority in a way that it can't be ignored. But that's interesting to me sometimes because it often feels to me that Jesus and Christianity is kind of in a corner in our society. Some people view Christianity, they, when they think about Jesus, they view it with disdain. Like, hey, that's, that's kind of old silly talk. It's an old, it's an old myth. It's mythology. And some people need that. But, you know, we have science now. We're smarter. We have gadgets. Like, like we don't need that anymore. They view it with disdain. Some people, some people uh, view it with, uh, with tolerance. Like, hey, maybe you need Christianity and that's your thing. But it's not my thing and it's, that's okay. You have your thing and I'll have my thing and we're okay. And a number of people just don't even think about Christianity or Jesus at all. It's not something that's on their minds at all. This morning, this is something that tears my heart up. It's the reason that we planted the church here. Is that every day passing by these streets and road by us are people who aren't scornful about Jesus or Christianity so much as they don't think about it at all. It's not on the radar at all for them. They're rejecting him, but not actively rejecting him. They just don't care about him or care about Christianity because they think it doesn't have anything to do with their life. However they view it, they view it with disdain or tolerance or not even thinking about it, either way, it just kind of stays in the corner of our society. It stays in the corner of our culture. But here, here's what we're seeing, and I hope that we're seeing in the book of Acts, is that if Jesus or Christianity or the church is hidden in a corner of our society or of our, or of our culture, it's not because society is against it and has kind of pushed it into a corner. It's not because Christians don't possess places or positions of power, like we need to elect more Christians or we need to get them appointed to the judiciary or we need to get more Christian millionaires and billionaires and businessmen, which I'm not against any of those things, but that's not what's pushed Christianity in the corner. If Christianity is pushing a corner, it's not because the government is unfriendly to Christianity and the church and Jesus. If Christianity and the church and Jesus is pushed to the corner of our society, it's because we have been content as Christians with it being there. Because what we see in the book of Acts, what we see in this passage, 
is that God has dedicated himself to with all the power that he has display his glory, his beauty, his excellencies through the church and to make Jesus non-ignorable in our society. In Ephesians 3, if you have your Bible, you can turn there real quick before we go back to Acts. In Ephesians 3, verse 10. We'll start back with verse 8 just to give us context. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So this is, he's going to lay out, this is God's plan throughout all of history. Hidden mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, this is why he created all things, so that through the church, the manifold or many-sided wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What he's saying is that it has been God's plan throughout all of history to display his manifold wisdom or his glory. When we say his glory, what what God's glory is, is whenever he goes public with his beauty. God's glory is when he goes public or he shows outwardly his, his inner beauty or his inner excellency. So the way, the primary, the greatest way, I mean, God shows his glory in a sunrise, right? God shows his glory in a beautiful sunset on the mountains. God shows his glory when a child is born. God shows his glory in a beautiful morning when the birds are chirping. God shows his morning in a beautiful way when you make a nice hot cup of coffee. God shows his glory through a plate of fried chicken. God shows his glory in many ways, but the primary and the greatest way God shows his glory that he is designed to show his glory is through displaying it through his church. He has made his church to be non-ignorable, to be the holding place of his power and his beauty and his glory in such a way that it cannot be ignored by the society that we live in. We see that so far in the book of Acts. But if he has decided, if he has designed his church to be non-ignorable in society, then why is there such a gap between what we read here and what most of us experience in life? Why is there such a gap between the life of the church that we see here and the life of the church that most of us experience day to day. This morning, I pray by God's grace that we'll not, that we'll at least begin to not be content any longer. I pray that our hearts will be captured as we see three things, the purpose of the power of God the effect of the power of God, and the response to the power of God. The purpose of the power of God, the effect of the power of God, and the response to the power of God. 
this passage, or, or we're working through today, Ephesians 5, 17 through 42, this passage is really the culmination of the past few chapters in the book of Acts. In a lot of ways, it's the culmination or the climax of the first five chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, so we see Jesus promises that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to his disciples. The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost comes to the disciples. They're born again and filled with the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people become believers on day one. Then a little while later, as the church is uh, enjoying and growing in the beauty and the, the gospel, uh, Peter and John are walking on their way to the temple and a lame man asks for money. And Peter looks at him and John looks at them. They say, hey, we don't have any money to give you, but we do have you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The man rises up and walk. He's been lame all his four, the 40 years of his life. And it gathers a great crowd around him. They preach the gospel. The authorities feel threatened because of what's going on. They arrest Peter and John. They tell them, they warn them to not preach anymore in the name name of Jesus. They're not bothered by the healing. They're bothered by the fact they're preaching in the name of Jesus. They tell them, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They are threatened. They're scared. They go back to the rest of the church and the church gathers together and they pray. And what they pray for is an interesting prayer to me because it's really what we're reading here is the end of the answer to the prayer that they pray. They prayed, basically, my paraphrased version is, God, show up and show off because you see what's happening here. The authorities have threatened us and have really by threatening us, they're threatening you. So we pray, show yourself strong through us, your weak people, because we can't show ourselves strong. We want you to show yourself strong by stretching out your hand to do amazing things. So they preach the gospel. More people are saved. There are great healings. There are great miracles. There are signs and wonders that are happening. The, the believers are no longer counting what they have as their own, but they're sharing with each other as anybody has need back and forth. And then, and Jonathan got to handle this passage last week, then a husband and a wife lied to Peter and really lied to the Holy Spirit and both of them separately about three hours apart dropped dead in front of the church. That would change the whole tenor of a church service. They dropped dead in the service for lying to God and understandably there's a great sense of awe and fear, a healthy kind of fear of God and an awe of God among the people who are part of the church. There's a sense, not just because somebody, two people drop down dead at the front of the church, but because there is a sense that in their midst, in our midst, is the holy God who created the heavens and the earth. The church is meant to be the vehicle for God's glory, a, a place where there's a sense of awe, a people among whom there's a sense of awe and wonder. And it says that those who were outside the church didn't dare to associate with them, but yet they held them in high esteem. And yet also, more than ever, they added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't that amazing? And then we see in this passage how the leaders respond. The leaders of the Jews respond to this. Verse 17, I'll just run through this again. He already read, I know it's a long passage. 
But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. The party of the Sadducees were, a, were the sort of movers and shakers among the Jews. They were the people who held high power. So when they see, uh, when they see the disciples preaching the gospel and more and more people following Jesus, it's threatening their power structure. And they were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and put them, this time all the apostles, not just Peter and John, they arrested them and put them in the public or the common prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of life. And they heard this, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, you can imagine how embarrassing it was for the courts the next morning when it convenes. And they, they send the guards, say, hey, go get the prisoners. They're already convened. They're waiting. There's probably people watching how everything's going to proceed. They send them. The guards come back and say, they're not there. I know I put them there. Sort of like, sort of like me with my phone. Like, I know I had my phone and I know I brought it in the house, but I cannot find it. It's gone. The people that they put in prison are missing. And they can't understand what's going on. And then somebody, hey, hey, are you talking about those, uh, those Christians? Oh, they don't call them Christians. Yeah, but are you talking about those Christians? They're down at the temple preaching. So the guard go down there to arrest them, re-arrest them and bring them back before the court, having no idea how they got down there. And when they get down there, they're afraid because the, the people, the apostles, are so popular, the Christians are so popular, that they're afraid if we arrest them publicly by force, the people are going to stone us. They're going to turn on us. And so they kind of talk to the, uh, to the uh, apostles, and the apostles say, hey, we'll willingly come with you. And they come with them and stand before the Sanhedrin, which is kind of an interesting move, isn't it? Like to willingly go to your own trial, which you know is like a bogus trial. They go and stand before the Sanhedrin and they say, hey, didn't, don't you remember, didn't we tell you not to preach in the name of Jesus? Don't teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And yet, you have continued to do that. You have filled the city with his teaching and you have, are trying to put the guilt upon our head for killing him. And Peter responds in verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Then he lays out the gospel. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, again, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now then, when they heard that, verse 33, when the leaders heard that, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a man named Gamaliel said, He's really kind of a smart guy in all this. He understands that he was very popular with the people, it tells us. And he understands that the apostles and the Christians are popular with the people right now. And so he says, hey, let's play it safe in this. And let's not do anything rash. Let's just 
chill a little bit. Let's see if this kind of falls apart. Jesus is gone. Uh, eventually this thing will fall apart. And we don't, if it's not, if it doesn't fall apart, maybe it is of God. And we don't want to be the ones opposing it, which is an interesting thing to say because we have no record that he ever followed Jesus, either before this or after this. And so they say, let's leave it alone, but yet let's beat them. So they beat the apostles, which was probably uh, 39 lashes with a terrible whip. It would have, it's not like, it's not like, not, not, a, not an easy beating. It's the kind of beating that would mar your back up. It would leave it gashed and bruised. It's not the kind of thing that will ev- may ever heal again correctly. If you've been beaten 39 times with one of their whips, it's very likely you're going to bear that scar the rest of your entire life. And in an age without modern medicine, it's a high chance of infection. It's going to hurt. It's going to be difficult to dress and uh, heal that wound. It's going to hurt like the Dickens for a long, long time. And you're going to bear the scar display. And then... Amazing verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. God's power is put on display when people around us see that he is all satisfying and all sufficient. And that's what we see in this passage and the passages leading up to this that display the power and the glory of God to the people of Jerusalem. He was so, the new believers find him to be so worthy, find Jesus to be so worthy, so worth it, that they are filled with joy even though none of their exterior circumstances have changed. Life for a peasant in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas was a very hard life. And very little, when they first become believers, actually externally changes. But yet they find Jesus to be so all-satisfying, so all-sufficient that, that they are filled with joy. They find him to be so worthy that they, that they, that they no longer clutch on money or possessions any longer. I found a greater treasure, so much so that I no longer count what I own as what I own anymore. I don't have to clutch it tightly. I hold it loosely and give it away freely to those who have need because I have a greater treasure that can never, ever, ever be exhausted. In fact, not only can it not be exhausted, it can't even be touched. He's so worthy that they consider a loss of their reputation because to be called out in front of the Sanhedrin in front of all of their friends and arrested now Peter and John multiple times, the, the apostles gathered twice for this one trial, they would have lost a great reputation with the people around them. But to lose their reputation and to stand in a fear of losing their life 
Peter and the apostles don't know for certain that God's going to save them and keep them alive. They're standing before this trial. They, may, they, they don't know if it's going to end in their death. And yet two times in a row, Peter has responded, we must obey God rather than man. To be, to have Jesus and to find, to be in his pleasure, to, to be in fellowship with him is so worth it that considering a loss of my life counts as very little. They had been awakened to the beauty of the glory of God. So much so that they found it worth any amount of pain and any amount of suffering that they had to undergo. They had, some of these people who are part of the the believers had been the first people who Peter and John and the apostles appeared before on the day of Pentecost when Peter proclaimed the gospel to them and said that you were part of killing Jesus and it says they were cut to the heart and and yet they repented and became believers to be cut to the heart is to be broken at your very core and they had experienced that to be cut to your very core, to be cut to the heart yourself is worth it if it results in you coming to know Jesus. And that's what happens to us when we become believers. Is we're cut to the heart. We realize that I am, that God is holy and I am sinful. That I'm a rebel against him. We realize that my heart is hard and far from him. We realize his greatness and his goodness. And my, my, my sheer amount of rebellion against him. And I'm cut to the core because of that. And yet that cutting becomes a sweet sorrow whenever it leads to repentance and the new birth. And look throughout this whole passage, the thing that stands out to me is how dedicated God is to his mission. He provides all of the power all the way through Whenever they were first arrested back in uh, chapter 4, and they go before God, they pray, God, show show your hand mighty. We don't have anything to bring to the table. God, would you show up in a mighty way? From that moment on, through the healings, through the life of the church, not counting things that they own, not clutching them as their own anymore, as they were sharing freely, as miracles and signs and wonders are happening, as they stand before the Sanhedrin, all the way through, God provides all the power. They stand before the Sanhedrin. Well, before that, they're arrested, put in prison, and the angel himself comes and frees them. All the power is from God. He gets all the credit throughout all this passage. And to the heart of the Christian, that is the greatest joy possible. God's power is dedicated to his glory. And if we want to experience his power, then we must become dedicated to his glory. God's power is dedicated to his glory above all things. And if we want to experience his power, then we must pursue his glory above all things. What's the purpose of the power of God? What's the effect of the power of God? Well, we've seen it through the passage so far, Acts 
541, whenever their response to the apostles, when they are beaten, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. After the imprisonment and the trial of the apostles, they, they go home rejoicing. And it's not just this beating. That it's not, this is not the first bit of suffering, not the first bit of inconvenience that the apostles have suffered. The apostles, all of their lives are more complicated than it was before they met Jesus. Think about it. Before they met Jesus, many of them were fishermen. And they were poor peasants, so they had a, a full, easy, or not easy, but a, a, a life that made sense. You go in the early in the morning and you go fishing. You come home, you dress and sell or, and or sell the fish. And then you go home and relax with your family and go to sleep and start it over again the next day. Maybe every now and then you have some time with your recreational time with your family and your friends. Like they had a life that made sense that was simple. And once they meet Jesus, their life becomes more and more complicated and is full of more and more suffering and dishonor. Their, their friends think they're crazy for following him. He's killed and he, they see him raised again and their friends and family around them think they're crazy for believing that Jesus rose again from the dead. They're arrested in front of their friends and family and put on display as enemies of the nation of Israel. They're in prison, Peter and John, now multiple times, and they've been beaten. And they don't know whether tomorrow this is all going to happen again and we're going to be arrested and killed then. Their lives are infinitely more complicated and harder than it was before Jesus. And yet... Something deep in them had changed. The bent of their lives was now about God being glorified through Jesus. And that's where they found their joy. And when our lives are centered around God being glorified through Jesus. Then we are putting ourselves in a position to be filled afresh or anew with the Holy Spirit. When we center our lives around God being glorified through Jesus, then we are aligning ourselves with God's mission and therefore we're in a position to experience his power. I think the reason most of us don't experience this kind of power in our lives, the power of God in a way that's non-ignorable and unexplainable apart from his presence and power in our lives is because most of us, our lives are not centered upon God's glory above all things. And when it is, the Holy Spirit will fill us continually afresh and anew and he will give us, like he gave the apostles, a humble boldness. Some of us in this room are that's by nature kind of humble and quiet. And some of us in this room are boisterous. We're naturally kind of going to put our thoughts and feelings out there for people to hear and understand. Me and my family, we kind of veer towards that if you haven't noticed. But what God gives us whenever we're filled with the Holy Spirit is he gives us a humility and a boldness at the same time. The apostles stand before the Sanhedrin, not in a haughty way, saying, hey, this may cost us, but we have to obey God rather than man. 
They're bold, but yet they're bold with a humility that only comes from being filled with the presence of the, and the power of the Holy Spirit. They don't proceed without any sort, any sort of sense of their own ability. It's not Peter's preaching or their great miraculous ministry that's going to accomplish anything. That's why when they're threatened before with the Sanhedrin for the first time, they respond in prayer to God. God, show up and show off through us. The Holy Spirit will give us a humble boldness. And the Holy Spirit will give us a different, an ability to measure success differently. Isn't it interesting how their measure of success had changed? Before, there, when Jesus was still around, they were fighting with each other on who was going to have the higher position of power and prestige when Jesus became the king of Israel. That's what they thought was going to happen. Who's going to sit at his right hand? Who's going to be his regent, his vice regent? They fought over these things. And yet now they care so little about their own reputation and their own possessions and their own power that when they are beaten, they rejoice counting themselves, not not rejoicing that they're still alive. They rejoice that God counted them worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. They had a whole different measure of success. Their measure of success was no longer popularity or possessions or ability. The Holy Spirit will give us a humble boldness and a different measure of success. And the Holy Spirit, when we are, when we are centered our lives around him and experience a fresh filling of him, the Holy Spirit gives us a greater reward. One of the lines I read in one of the commentaries as I studied this passage that really stood out to me is that the the believers experience in the presence of the Holy Spirit a greater reward than could be offered to them by compromising. He gives us a greater reward now from the presence and fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives and gives us a promise of a greater reward that's to come. Because all of his power is set towards his glory. And when we align ourselves with that, we align ourselves to be filled with his presence and his power. He prepares us to make much of Jesus. Many of us rarely experience that power because we have different aims. We're resistant. Lastly, let's look at the response to the power of God. When the power of God is on display, it always elicits a response. This is the part about it not being kept in a corner. When the power of God is on display, it always elicits a response. Look at the response of the leaders in verse 17. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Now so far, this really didn't threaten them personally. It it continued. It could threaten their power structure. But people sharing all they had together and people being healed and, you know, a, a, (coughs) a sect of people who believe slightly different than them. Because there are other people, other Jews who believe slightly different. That really didn't threaten them, but something about 
the name of Jesus threatened them. So much so that when Peter stood before them and he proclaimed Jesus to them, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Their response was jealousy and rage. Because if Jesus is in charge, if, he's the, if he is indeed the leader and savior for us, if he truly is the leader and savior for all people, and the only way to salvation, then what does that make me? But look at the response of the apostles. We already, we already covered it. In verse 29, Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And when they are beaten, they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. A strong response is a sign of the power of God. And it always moves us to one side or the other. It either moves us towards a harder heart or it moves us towards a softer heart, a broken heart to God. When the power of God is on display, it always moves us to either a harder heart or it moves us to a softer heart. But it always elicits a strong response. The leaders weren't angry that they were proclaiming that they were healing people. They were angry that they were proclaiming salvation in Jesus alone. And that's a question that all of us have to answer. If Jesus is in charge, if he is the leader and savior, then what does that make me? What does that make you? And whenever he's put on display and he is shown to be the savior and the leader of all, then to some people, it's a smell of death. They won't know part of that. And to some people, it's a smell or a savor of life. That's because Jesus is the closest and the clearest picture of the wisdom and glory of God that there is. It's only in Jesus that we see perfectly the holiness of God and man's sinfulness. We see the mercy of God and our helplessness come together in one. Because God pours out on Jesus the the holy wrath that each of us had coming to us. And in mercy, he pours it out upon Jesus and offers us forgiveness and salvation through him. And it's our response to the glory of God shown in the person of Jesus that will determine whether we're in alignment with the power of God or not. It's our response, our cinderedness, I just made up that word, our cinderedness upon Jesus in our lives. 
that will determine if we're a powerful church or we're powerful Christians, or we're a weak church and weak Christians, easily relegated to the corner and easily ignorable. God has designed Christianity. He has designed you, if you're a believer, as such that God's power at work in and through your life should be such that he should be non-ignorable to your family and coworkers and neighbors. They may not respond the way we want them to respond. It may push some to a harder heart, but we pray that as many as possible, it would push them to have their heart broken and see the beauty that is found in the face of Jesus. It's our centeredness, our response to him that will determine if we're a powerful church or not. Or if we're easily relegated to a corner and easily ignorable and all in the grand strand. Our great mission as a church is to see that Jesus is non-ignorable by the people who live along the grand strand. And that's not something that we can or even should try to accomplish on our own. It is only accomplishable through the power of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And that only happens as we center our lives individually and collectively together upon him. And therefore align ourselves to be able to showcase the power of God to the people around us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.